You're listening to Feed, Play, Love, a podcast that's all about supporting parents as they bring up children. We've got experts and advice to help you through the more challenging bits of parenting. I'm Siobhan Hunt. Sometimes, after you've had kids, you can think your days of adventure and travel are over. Sometimes it feels hard enough to get out the front door. My next guest didn't feel this way. When his children were five and seven, he packed up his whole family and moved to Bolivia in South America. Ben Sanders is an illustrator whose latest picture book was in part inspired by his life in Bolivia. Hi, Ben. How are you? Very good. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Pleasure. How long have you been back from Bolivia now? Almost exactly two years back, but uh, we were there for three years. Which is a long time. What on earth made you decide to move to Bolivia? Wow. It goes back 10 years earlier than that, actually. Um, I really, really wanted to live in South America, specifically Bolivia. And it's really, really hard to explain why. I had a fascination for um, the Incan Empire, the history. um, And every time I flipped through my father's National Geographic magazines when I was a kid, I was fascinated by the South American um, history. And and I just thought this would be, of all the places in the world that I want to travel, and I want to travel everywhere, and I have travelled to 30-odd countries, there's one place that I would really like to try and live, and that was Bolivia. And it's interesting because, of course, South America is a massive continent and there are parts of South America that are possibly a little bit more developed than Bolivia. Uh, And yet you still wanted to go there with young children. Was it a daunting prospect when you finally decided we're going to move or was it just pure excitement? It was mostly excitement. But I tell you what, when you get closer and closer to getting there, you start to have some doubts and you start to think, (laughs) I'm taking my children who are five and seven to a third world country, basically, or a developing country, a country that's up and coming, you know, it's it's moving forward, but it's still very underdeveloped compared with its neighbours like Brazil and Argentina. Uh, And... But it's it's so exciting to take them somewhere that's a completely different culture, a different language, um, and give them an experience that otherwise they would not have been able to get. Um, Australia is a multicultural country, but you can't get this kind of experience in Australia. No way. And your wife, she was working in HR. You were an illustrator then as well, as you are now. Um, how did she feel about this decision? Had you met travelling? You said that, you know, it started 10 years or even in your childhood, it started a long time before you actually made the final move. Mm. Was that something that was just part of your relationship, travelling? Yeah, I think I had to convince my wife, who's from a a small country town in Victoria uh, and who hadn't even been to Melbourne before. Wow. She hadn't been to a big city before she met me. And so seeing her excitement at just going places... Uh, was wonderful. So I don't think I had to convince her too much that travel is a good thing. We'd had a couple of trips overseas, but she really wanted to see what Bolivia was like before we made the move to live there, which is fair enough. That's a very cautious and good move. <laughs> she used to be a health and safety officer, and so for her not to assess the risks before we went was uh, just natural to her, whereas I'm a little bit more gung-ho. I think this is going to be an adventure, and if we assess too many of the risks, then we won't go. go. But to her credit, 
um, she went along with it, and she really wanted something to go to. Um, she didn't want to just tag along and think, well, what am I going to do while we, we're there? So she volunteered um, in a women's refuge um, because uh, her background also is in uh, domestic violence uh, prevention and things like that. So so she was able to plug into something and volunteer full-time while she was over there, which was wonderful for her. I think she almost got more out of the experience than I did in the end because of the the work that she did. What was it like when you first arrived? To be honest, I felt like we were out on a very long limb and we were on a twig really at the end of that limb and I felt like maybe if something goes wrong we could that could just snap and we're we're in trouble. But that was probably unfounded. That was probably just a, a natural fear that you have that we don't have the supports. You realise you don't have the supports you had before. We don't know anyone around us, really. We've got a couple of contacts. Um and we don't Did you have a place lined up? Uh, yeah, we did. We did. Uh, it looked like it was going to fall through. <laughs> so you don't you don't really want to be homeless in a foreign country as soon as you land. But it all worked out quite well. Um, and we had um, we had a, a real estate guy over there that we'd contacted before we left. Uh, he was a Kiwi actually. Wow. And I, I it was kind of reassuring because he could speak English. And he knows the, you know, uh, the experience of um, extranjeros. What's that in, in Foreigners. English? Foreigners. He's still in <laughs> and, the mix. Yeah. That, uh, that, and so speaking to him and our, our Spanish at that time was not very good at all. That was a reassurance to us um, that, oh, yeah, okay, he can give us some advice on how to survive in this country. And you were in Sucre, is that right? We were in Sucre. We we first landed in um, a city called Tarija, which is near the Argentine border. We were only there for six months, and we moved to Sucre because that's where the opportunities were for my wife to volunteer and um, also discovered um, a charity that I could be involved in because I could. we pretty quickly worked out that I can work 20 hours a week and that'll sustain us wow. over there. Um, and what was the first? Can you describe what it looked like for those who haven't been to Bolivia? Obviously, it's a it's a small country, but lots of diversity within it. Mm. What was it like with the the first town where you were for six months and then living in Sucre? What were what did it look like? What was it? What did it feel like being there? It felt um, apart from the initial fear. Or every now and then you have a twinge of fear that things might go wrong. Um, it felt very free and very open and extremely friendly in Tarija. Uh, in fact, um, the, the Tarijenos would say to us, um, oh, you're going to move to Sucre. That's a crazy move. The people aren't friendly in Sucre. And it's probably because the the people from Tarija were some of the friendliest people in the world. You know, they're very open and accepting of of foreigners, which is amazing when you consider there's hardly any foreigners there. You'd think they'd be a bit, bit more resistant. You'd imagine that. But we were we made so many friends so quickly there that it was hard to leave and go somewhere else. We went to Sucre. They're a lot more reserved, a different people group. So we were... Um, uh, with uh, Warani people in in 
Tariha, and then when we moved, we were in a much bigger people group, the Quechua. Um, and they're the descendants of the ancient Incans. So, um, and they're a little bit more, they've, they've had a, a fair few dealings with the West before and not positive. You know, there's been some, they're very aware of the, the, the issue of the Spanish coming in. They led the revolution to overthrow the Spanish. In more recent times, other Western powers have been not so good to their country, and so they're quite suspicious of foreigners. So they're very friendly people, but it took a little while to get past um, the initial resistance. Uh, and I'm, I have not been to Bolivia, but I have images of you living in, like, the Andes or something. Um, what, what was Sucre like? Was it... Um, was there a colonial history there that you could see? Was it present in the city? Yes, it is a very special uh, colonial Spanish colonial town. Um, it's it is an amazing city, really. It is the city that started the revolution that liberated all of South America. Um, well, I don't know if people can imagine what a Spanish colonial town looks like, but it's, it kind of looks like. It's it's very special European feel to it, mixed with people in um, traditional South American um, garb, you know, that they wear. It's it's pretty it's amazing. Colourful, it's, right. it's very colourful. It's quite vibrant, actually. Um, they're a very exciting group of people. Yeah. Uh, so we were in we were amongst the Quechua there for for two and a half years, and I've I've got to say. It's the one of the best two and a half years of my life. Yeah. And how did your children adjust and find that time? I was a little worried that they they may not adjust too well. And we were given advice that they'll learn the language really quickly. Um, in 12 months, they'll be fluent. Um, you throw them into the culture and they'll embrace it. And all of that, to my amazement, was true. We threw the kids in with very little Spanish into a school where only one teacher spoke English. And that was one of the reasons why, why we sent them to that school. So that was a backup. But they didn't really need it. They were probably confused for a few weeks. But then they really took off with the language a lot quicker than we did as, as adults. And they were amazingly adaptable. And I just thought, this is this is going much better than I ever expected. I'm just assuming that you didn't have fussy eaters before you left? No, we didn't have fussy eaters. <laughs> and I've got to give my wife credit for that. Um, she gave them um, a breadth of foods and we didn't accept uh, fussy eating in our house. And I don't think it was preparation for Bolivia, but it certainly worked very well when we got there. There's certainly foods that I didn't enjoy as much um, in Bolivia because um, most of the dishes over there are a combination of corn and potato. And when you're up uh, as high as we were, we were right up in the Andes. We were 3,000 metres above sea level. Um, your taste buds don't respond they're duller up there. They don't respond as well to flavour. And so a lot of the food seemed a little flavourless to us, but we realised after time that it's just just the altitude, you know. They do their best, but, you know, you you can't glean flavour where you can't taste it. So, Did the altitude affect you at all? Because you can get 
altitude sickness at 3,000. You can. You've got to be careful the first few weeks you're there and you've got to drink plenty of water, but uh, you don't fully adjust. So you still feel like if you walk a kilometre, still feels like you've walked five. Um, but your body does adjust enough to, to not notice it that much. So interesting. Um, you mentioned your wife did some volunteer work um, with domestic violence shelters. Mm. You also found a volunteer organisation. Well, you volunteered for an organisation illustrating. Can you tell me about how that happened and who you were working for? So I was working for BiblioWorks and they have an amazing program and I'm not sure if it's similar to anything else around the world, but um, there's a problem in Bolivia with um, children working at a very, very young age. So their families will send them onto the streets to sell things or perform or something like that from the age of seven, around seven. Um, and they're not mean parents. They're, they're just trying to make enough money for the family and their child is, is a, a means to that um, in order for, them, for the family to eat uh, and pay the bills, basically. Uh, so these children are on the street, and, and our job was to uh, find the kids uh, and get them back to school somehow. So a magazine was started, and I was doing the illustration design work on the magazine, and we'd sell that to tourists and locals. It was in English and Spanish, uh, and that money would go to the families so that we could put the kids back into school. We could give them uh, free medical um, checkups because kids on the street uh, are very susceptible to certain parasites and a disease called Chagas, which can kill street kids. Um, and it's very cheaply and easily prevented. But if these children don't have access to a doctor or any medical services, well, they are likely to die from it at a very early age. So it's not just about that. That's, that's an easy fix, really. It's about getting them back into school uh, and valuing literacy. The organisation also started libraries in the villages around our city, around Sucre. And uh, so, so far they've, um, they've started 14 different libraries and they've become community hubs. And it's, a, and it's about getting into a culture that... Um, hasn't valued reading before because it's mostly an oral um, tradition, um, getting them to understand that it's really important now to be able to read and write and the opportunities that that will bring those families and those children and the future for them uh, is, is broken wide open uh, with simple literacy. So I think it's a wonderful thing that Biblio works. That's the name of the, the NGO that they do, and I was very proud to be part of that for two and a half years. And talking right now, I really miss the kids that, that I worked with on the street. Um, I was going to ask you that because um, the age of the children when they send them out, obviously your kids when you first moved there were that age. Was it confronting for you to see these young children and what they were going through? It's, it is a little bit to, to begin with, uh, and it's confusing because... You come from Australia and you don't see that kind of thing on the street. Uh, it's illegal here, but it's illegal over there. So um, a foreigner comes in and says, this isn't right. And the general population will say, well, it's not illegal. And it's this is the way we do things here. And that's fair enough. Um, but it's about saying, well, what 
if if we took these children from the street who are, they've lost their childhood in a way from the age of seven um, and put them back into school, would this be better for your family? Would this be better? Would this open up a brighter future for not just um, your child but for your whole family? Um, and many families, they already know that it's better to keep your kids in school. So, but what other choice do I have is, is the thinking. And so if you're able to give them an option that is better than what they currently have, then um, many families embraced that opportunity, which is wonderful. I think um, you just pointed out the obvious in terms of poverty. So we do definitely have poverty in Australia, yeah. not as visible, certainly not in the major cities, not as visible, especially when it comes to children. What, how did your kids respond to being exposed to that and seeing that? Oh, it was really interesting because my daughter, who was a little bit older at the time, she was seven, eight, nine, ten, you know, um, she understood a little bit better that this is different from what I've seen before and uh, probably a bit confronting, but she made friends with a lot of the, the girls on the street herself. Uh, in fact, one of her best friends was uh, one of the girls that we worked with and um, went to birthday parties and all that sort of stuff. Um, and my daughter didn't really see... Uh, that that she was any different from those kids, just a different situation. My son, on the other hand, looks at these kids and says, they're selling lollies on the street. Why can't I? Why can't I? I could make <laughs> some money here. So she, he, he would want something and he'd say, Mum, Dad, let me go and sell something on the street. I remember one day he gathered a few things in his bedroom and said, um, can I go out? Can I go them? out? <laughs> Said, no, I don't think you fully understand the gravity of this. You know? no. We'll be back with Ben Sanders right after this. Sometimes parenting can be challenging and sometimes it can be a downright laugh. The wonderful thing about being a kid is having wonderment in your eyes, looking at the world and going... We've all pushed oh. our children's poo <laughs> down, down the, the drain. <laughs> Either way, it's fun to share stories with people who really understand the joys and sorrows of raising small children. I'm Siobhan Hunt and the Parent Panel is a weekly podcast I host where we invite a mum and a dad to discuss the events and stories of the week. The Parent Panel, available wherever you get your podcast. Why did you decide to come home? Well, immigration wasn't very kind to us, uh, for starters. There's a bit of corruption in that country. Um, the people aren't corrupt. Uh, they're fighting against corruption. But in higher places, um, especially in immigration and, and other government departments, there is a degree of, of corruption. Um, we fought that after our first year visa was up and we're fighting for our next two years uh, and it cost us a lot of money and we had to get a lawyer involved um, just because we wouldn't pay bribes we had to really jump through some crazy hoops to stay in the country and I didn't really want to fight that the second time around um, it was quite stressful and you don't you don't want to be in a position where you, you feel like okay we're going to have to leave the country now unplanned also my daughter was was um about to go into high school and I felt like it was a good time to come back to Australia. Um, so even though we'd planned on being there for probably around about 10 years, we kind of just put this 10 years thing out there. We, we were three years in and really getting a handle of the language and the culture and being part of the community. And, um, it feels like we cut it short, but 
in the end, we really didn't have any choice, especially with um, that's heartbreaking. With immigration, so it was heartbreaking to leave, uh, especially leave the, the street kids. Um, those kids are amazingly resilient kids, um, and also part of the program shut down when we left, oh. and it's uh, getting back up again. Um, so that's encouraging for me, but that was also heartbreaking to think, oh, not all the work that we've been involved in is going to continue when we leave, um, despite our best efforts. So that was a bit sad, actually. Coming back was, um, I wouldn't say depressing, but there was a certain heaviness about about coming back to Australia, even though we're coming back to family, to comfort, to things that we enjoyed, all of that kind of thing. That was good. That was a positive, but you've you can't bring with you what you've left behind. So that was a bit sad. And what about reverse culture shock? Because um, you mentioned I spent time in Ecuador, which I did when Mm. I was um, just out of high school. I did a student exchange. And they used to talk to us about kind of like a reverse culture shock, that when you come home, it can also feel quite strange. Did you experience that coming back? I'm not sure. Because you went back to Ballarat to another country town, but a very different type of existence from even a major city in Australia or a thriving city in Bolivia. Yeah, completely different. And it's true, reverse culture shock does exist, even though it's very difficult to comprehend why. Why? Yes. (laughs) You know, um, because I remember somebody handing me over there, somebody handing me a a book and saying, you know, you'll experience reverse culture shock when you go back to Australia. And I think, but I've lived there all my life. I've only been away for three years. And I don't think I was hit too hard, to be honest. And I don't think my daughter was, but my son and my wife were hit pretty hard because um, Jules, my wife, she'd, she'd worked for three years on something pretty intense, you know, family violence at a refuge, uh, working with women every day. Uh, and then she comes back and realises that she hasn't got a piece of paper in order, she hasn't got an Interpol piece of paper to say that she hasn't committed crimes in Bolivia, so the Australian government won't allow her to work in social work here in Australia with without that piece of paper, and she'll have to go back to Bolivia to get it, and... Um, she would ha- she would have had to have paid a bribe in order to get that piece of paper, and it was quite stressful for her. And what about your son? You said you thought he maybe experienced a bit. Yeah, he he's the one who is the slowest to adjust to change, and he did admirably well. But um, it's a stressful time for him. The first two months we went over there because everything was so foreign, and then when we s- announced to him that we were coming back. He was no, but I like it here. You know, <laughs> this is this is what I know now. This is, and so coming back was uh, disruptive for him as well for a few months. But how, my how daughter, do you dan- handle that as a parent? Because you know we never like to see our kids suffer, and particularly when you and your wife were very attached to the country, you probably mm. understood why he felt so attached and didn't want to come back. How do you yeah. how do you manage that as a parent? Sometimes it's a little hard to manage because you don't necessarily recognise that the behaviour that's coming out of the kid right now is because of that. You think, oh, you're having a bad day or, you know, and you treat it like any other behavioural issue. But uh, pretty quickly we realised, oh, he's, um, he's stressed about being back here. It's not familiar. He has to, he's an introvert. He's, he's resistant to change. 
Um, how do we deal with it from here? And it's, I think it's really just about acknowledging that, yeah, what you're feeling is absolutely fine. Um, we're all going through it. We're probably not showing it as much as you, and that's absolutely fine. It's about um, keeping some traditions that you or, or habits that you normally do consistent no matter where you are, whether you're here or whether you're in overseas somewhere. Um, and that was that was my brilliant wife. She she was saying, if if we have pancakes every Saturday morning, that's a familiar thing. We can have that in Bolivia. We can have that in Australia. If we read books to the kids uh, just before they go to bed, it doesn't matter where we are. We can do that. And that's a familiar, comforting, uh, good thing to do to help um, help us all adjust, really, to the other changes that are happening in our lives. So um, it it dies down over time, and within a couple of months, um, everything's cool again, if you know what I mean. He's okay. Um, of course, I'm, it's a very long way to lead into your new book, um, which is my book, not yours, and it features a sloth. And I did say that it was inspired in part by your life in Bolivia. Um Tell me why you created this book in particular and what you were thinking when you made it. Well, that's a really good question. When I was in Bolivia, I didn't really watch any TV. Um, and so I found that I had a lot more time on my hands. And so when I was by myself, I would I started writing books. I've written books before, had books published before, but suddenly in my life I found that I had a lot <laughs> of time to write and I also was surrounded by new things, which is inspiring. And um, one of the things that we really enjoyed doing, we went down from the Andes into the Amazon and uh, we saw sloths in the in the wild for the first time, which was amazing. And the very first sloth we saw, and I think it was a real bonus, not many people get to see this, we said, oh, look at that sloth going. Yeah, this is amazing. We got really close and um, you don't touch the sloth though. Uh, and then we realized that there was a little baby sloth, you know, just a few oh. inches high that was, uh, that was clinging onto the mum. And we thought that was the cutest thing and suddenly our favorite, all of our favourite um, animals were, were sloths. So um, I thought, I really need to write a kid's book that features a sloth. Also, the, the correlation between how slow a sloth is um, in moving and all that sort of stuff, I felt that that was kind of the story of the, the kids, uh, the street kids. Um, they're not given a lot of opportunity. That um, For them, life is moving very slowly and they don't have a lot of choice. And um, I felt I put the personality of those kids into into the character of the sloth in, in my new book. Um, and of course I thought I thought the, the sloth in my book was um, uh, the hero of the piece. And so I've I've given him a little cape and everything. Um, but he, he's not necessarily a hero, he's just a good, well intentioned person and I I see that that um, was a a good analogy for for these kids who are kind of stepped on by society in a lot of ways mistreated um, a lot over there just because they're street rat kind of thing and um, they're treated worse than dogs are treated and that's a saying over there as well so being lower than the dogs is um, not a good place to be and I wanted to to write something that um, elevated those kids above that.
Yeah, and it is a beautiful picture book, and we'll put links to the book in the notes to this episode. Um, before I let you go, Ben, the work that you did with um, Biblio Works. Biblio Works. Do they accept donations? Can we put a link to the website? If you absolutely can, yes, um, they they do accept donations. We'll put that in the notes as well. Ben, thank you so much for coming in and talking with us. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. Next time on Feed, Play, Love, we have the much-loved Mothercraft nurse, Chris Minogue, answering all your questions. So you take out yogurt, cheese, whole milk, like, you know, milk you put on your cereal and your tea and your coffee. It's quite dramatic. And also milk chocolate. Oh, what? <laughs> so it's not even, a bit much. It's not even worth it, is it? Don't forget to email your questions to helpline at theparentbrand.com.au. I'm Siobhan Hunt. This podcast is produced by Debbie Ning. See you next time. Mm-hmm.